You are listening to What in the World right here on WERALP Arlington, Virginia. I am your host, Bumi Akinasotu. On this episode, I have the honor and pleasure to speak with one of the coolest guys ever here in Washington, D.C. Yeah, you. That's you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure if I've ever been referred to as You are one of the coolest people. I will remind all of my my friends that that is what you said about me. (laughs) <laughs> well, they can hear it. You can play it over and over. Uh, Wael Azayat. Uh, Wael is going to break down the crisis in Syria. He's quite outspoken about the civil war that's happening there. Um, but he's also on the front lines here in the United States where he tries to combat Islamophobia. Wael is the CEO of Engage, a group that fosters Muslim American political engagement. He is an expert on America's foreign policy strategy when it comes to the Middle East and worked at the State Department for 10 years and was the Syria Outreach Coordinator uh, for State Department. He was also the advisor to the previous U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Samantha Power. As a first-generation Arab and Muslim American, Wael has long been um, a passionate advocate for protecting the fundamental American values and freedoms and increasing civic engagement of minority communities. Wael was named in one of the top 10 inspiring Arab-American leaders by the Huffington Post. Told you you were cool. I don't know who's paying these people off, but <laughs> I'll take it. No, thank you. It's kind of embarrassing. But no, why are you embarrassed? It's super cool. <laughs> so, uh, well, like we do for every show, I try to ask people how they got to the space of foreign yeah. policy. Like what brought you here to this moment in your personal life? Or there was there something that you experienced as a child that sort of said, okay, this is where you're headed, is, is this space. First of all, Bermi, thanks so much for having me. No problem. Um, I think this, is, yeah, I've never done a podcast. What? I've been on radio before, but I'm really happy um, that somebody like you is doing this kind of work here in our community and for us uh, to be, you know, part of uh, what you're trying to accomplish and, and to be supportive of this. You know, in terms of how I got in this space, you know, it's, it's a combination of being, you know, a child born and raised in the heart of the Middle East in Damascus, Syria. And as many of my friends and colleagues and, and, and people from that region specifically, it's inescapable not to be paying attention to what's going on around you politically, diplomatically. The region has been a battleground space for so many groups, countries, uh, large and small, that affects your life in ways that a few people really understand in other parts of the world. And obviously, as you see right now, it's happening in Syria and the broader Middle East. That's still going on. So there's that. I grew up uh, in a household where my father was a straight-up political junkie. You know, all the news, all the newspapers, news programming is around me. And so I've really developed an interest and a passion in international relations specifically and how those actions affect the daily lives of people at a very early age. Yeah, your dad sounds like my dad. Yeah, which, which, <laughs> is, which is cool, but sometimes just does drive you crazy. It does. Because you're like, can we please turn on the cartoons? <laughs> Can you, for God's sake, watch a soccer game? And then as you're watching cartoons, he's yes. like, you know, this reminds me of actually. And and, and, and as, again, may, a lot of people may uh, identify with this, the conspiracy theories <laughs> run rampant. And so, you know, it affected me in, this, in, in an opposite way, actually, because it made me not doubtful, but want to know, well, are those conspiracy theories really true? Mm. And if there are some truths to them, then they're not conspiracy theories right. and they need to be addressed. Right. But to disaggregate... Facts from fiction, you know, this whole thing with fact with fake news. People in the Middle East have been living this with this. 
<laughs> for generations. So they have reason to to look you know, at the media funny, and your dad has the reason media, to suspect. <laughs> the motivations of politicians, yeah. the motivations of governments, motivations of superpowers, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So part of your work is to connect the American Muslim community with elected officials and other federal government agencies and the political community you know, at large. And so Islamophobia is real. We know that it's, it's everywhere. You see it on the front lines every day. Um, but a lot of people may not realize that it's actually already evident in our domestic policy and how states go about, you know, addressing some of the fears they have about the Muslim community. Uh, you tweeted about HB 419 out of Idaho. So can you tell us what that is exactly and why it's so problematic? No, it's, it's extremely problematic. And, and, and I'm glad you're shedding light on this. This particular bill uh, that just passed the lower chamber in Idaho was introduced now for the third session in a row on an unfounded concern that so-called Sharia law is overtaking Idaho courts. And the bill attempts to prevent Idaho courts and judges from considering court rulings from other countries unless that country provides its citizens similar fundamental liberties as the U.S. and Idaho constitutions. Now, this feat is almost impossible to meet. Uh, with most of even our democratic allies, by the way, um, <laughs> including Israel. Hmm. It would create serious difficulties and consequences to everyday lives of people in Idaho who marry abroad, for example, um, who file for divorce, um, adopt children from overseas, um, and other like family matters that affect all of us, right. particularly those with family members abroad or they come from, you know, I mean, which is like most of the American public. Right. But this is part of a broader national agenda by hate groups. Mm -hmm. This is what's important for people to know that is sweeping the nation. And the, and these hate groups like Act for America, for example, that's been designated as a hate group by the ACLU and the Southern Poverty Law Center, they have used the fear of terrorism, specifically terrorism from Muslims, um, since 9-11 to legislate discrimination into our state laws. Right. And, and they've used it, used it to great effect where they've introduced it now in, in many of our states. I don't have the number, but a number of states now have adopted anti-Sharia laws that basically, from our perspective, creates undue concern and fear of Muslims right. and has contributed now to the broader anti-Muslim hysteria and both in rhetoric and action that we're seeing even at the federal level. Yeah. And so you as a as a leader in this space mm. um, are in touch with many of um, of the other communities, Muslim communities around the country. So my guess is that there are differences, you know, in people's concerns and agendas. So how do you create a unified Muslim voice to combat all of this hate? One thing that's very important to note is that most, there are Muslim communities in America. Uh, they're very diverse. Uh, they could be African-American or Arab or South Asian, uh, but beyond race, uh, from different social political backgrounds. They're Democrats and Republican Muslims. So I will never claim that I'm going to be able or my organization <laughs> will create consensus among all of them. But given the, the, uh, the troubling rise of anti-Muslim and you know, anti-Semitic, anti-immigrant, everything, anti -everything, anti -everything. everything, everything <laughs> yeah. correct. We've really been focusing on educating the public, both Muslim and otherwise, on bills such as this one, on the attack on fundamental religious freedom, so education, whether in-person events or online or in partnerships with other organizations, right. by engaging directly with elected officials at the state level and in Congress, 
and getting those communities to join us. So it's not just us talking with elected officials. Right. So our chapters in some, in some of the states, like in Pennsylvania or Florida or Michigan, are meeting with elected officials and bringing with them the community to express their views on these issues and to collaborate on better solutions to legitimate issues like national security, for right. example. Right. And quite frankly, in investing in the right kind of leaders, in educating people on figuring out what is it that you really should be looking for when in a nonpartisan way, when you're judging candidates for office and then assessing the performance of candidates once they have received your support. All too often, minority communities are expected to go one way or another, and sometimes they're pressed to do that. They're expected to donate without figuring out who they're donating for and why. And what they stand and what, for. And what's the return on investment right. here. So it's bringing a level of sophistication to this entire operation. Yeah. You know, Candidate forums are important. Bring the candidates to the community, all of them and let them speak to these issues right. and let them know that the community is going to want to touch base with them on a regular basis and will vote at the ballot box and with their money. This sounds like the Parkland community, um, Absolutely. the students who are out there holding these folks accountable. And so I'm, I'm guessing it's the same thing with the Muslim community, We really any community. We want to make sure that elected officials know the impact of their decisions. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, let's jump into the meat of this wonderful topic. Well, it's not wonderful. It's actually quite, it's, this was one of the hardest um, topics I've had to research. It was um, quite mm. complex, but then just heartbreaking. Mm. Um, I, and, and you see it in the news and you hear the stories, but I don't know that how many, I just didn't realize the impact um, that, it, that it's happening. So um, let's just start geopolitically. And for our listeners, that's a foreign policy term for just, let's look at the region um, that Syria is in and who the key players are. So if you've got a map, you can pull out your map, find the Mediterranean Sea, if you don't know where the Mediterranean Sea is, I can't help you, but Google where the Mediterranean yeah, shame Sea on you is. For not shame knowing on you. Where Greece is, for yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> we're just next to Greece. Just we're not too far. There too you far. go. Find the Mediterranean Sea and move your finger to the right, and you'll find, you'll hit Israel, I think, first, and then you should hit Syria. Yes. But let's talk about just geographically. No um, pun intended. No. <laughs> Exactly. No pun intended. Yeah. Uh, Syria, it's geographically situated in a region of the world that has ancient ties to all of the Abrahamic religions, mm -hmm. Christianity, Islam, uh, and certainly the Jewish Judaism, Judaism mm -hmm. uh, faith. And so for our listeners who are steeped into their faith, yeah. they, they know, you know, Damascus because it's in the Bible. Right. Mm -hmm. We've heard of many. Syria is mm -hmm. in the Bible. Certainly Israel in the Bible. So yeah. um, today, though, thanks to in part colonialism and wars and countries annexing different parts of different places, the region looks a lot different than it did in biblical times. And it's important that we understand who the key players are in that region today mm. um, and why they're so important. And so... Well, mm. walk us through. Well. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to be a sort of social studies teacher and yeah. as, as quickly as you can, sort of who uh, who are the major players in this region that we should know about that have a key role in yeah. what's happening in Syria? So basically, I will literally try to distill what <laughs> otherwise is is a full class that I teach <laughs> at Georgetown. So you can so. sign up for YL's <laughs> class at Georgetown if you want to get the deep dive. Yeah, look. The, the, the Middle East, specifically the Levant, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, slash Palestine, are the product in many ways of, at least as their current borders are concerned, of colonialism. The French and the Brits, uh, among the victors of World War II and World War I, were able to carve out spheres of influence and formalize them in the form of new borders with uh, local governments that were allied with them afterwards. 
And that really continued until the independence of these countries in various ways. Mm -hmm. But that legacy meant that the lines were not necessarily drawn in a way that represents the ethnic, religious, or in many ways, the political interest of the people. This sounds strikingly familiar. Does to not Africa. sound like Africa at all. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, to 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 again to Arabs and particularly Muslims, you know, in this sense, we're not that special. But uh, the region has suffered tremendously in part because of that. This is not the only reason. Sure. Post colonialism, the region really went through a tumultuous period of coups of which again Africa has experienced right. and 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 Latin, Latin America. America has experienced. Now, some Asian countries have experienced until they settled into what we kind of see right now, which is in general, you know, I hope I don't offend too many people, but from Morocco to, to Iran, you have in general long-term rulership, either at, in the form of a long reigning president or monarch. And that naturally creates a lot of tensions with the population and doesn't always give you the best outcome in terms of policies because you're not drawing from a wide range of, of resources in your country. The Syrian regime has uh, been the inheritor of this legacy. Since the really late 60s, mm -hmm. the country has been ruled by the same family, mm -hmm. the Assad family, mm -hmm. for something like almost 50 years now. The current president of Syria is the son of Hafiz al-Assad, his father, who came, through, came to power through a coup d'etat, and they have ruled it with an iron fist. Syria has been basically under the Assads as a, the best comparison would be really uh, Germany under the Stasi, mm. uh, the feared secret police. So the president, his family, and their supporters control every aspect of the national security, political, and really economic establishment. And as long as you try to eke out a living, sometimes you could be successful without contesting the structure, in Syria, you're probably going to be left alone, maybe harassed every now and then whenever you become a bit too popular or too successful. And so that really reality continued, and the Syrian people, to their credit, managed uh, to thrive as much as they can in the sense of creating a beautiful culture, beautiful food, beautiful music. Everybody who's visited Syria even before the Civil War loved it. People were hospitable. And it was all true. But beneath the surface, everything was not all right. And it was never going to be all right until the, the structure of the state was renegotiated and, and remade. Mm -hmm. And that is, that is why we had the revolution. Now, what was the exact trigger? You know, you had it start in Tunis and in other places. Under, um, under, the, under the auspice of the, what we call the Arab Spring the Arab of Spring 2011. 2011. Yeah. But the material for the fire were there. What was the spark? You know, I will never claim that I knew exactly this was going to happen and when it was going to happen. But once it happened, we knew why. Right. Lack of freedom, lack of equal opportunity. And the regime responded in the only way it knew, which is violently, hmm. because it controls the military and the secret police. And as a byproduct of its violent response, the opposition, which began as a peaceful movement for democracy, turned violent as well, picked up arms to defend themselves and right. their communities, and very quickly... Because Syria is considered too important to a number of countries, specifically Iran. Iran views Syria as one of its strategic allies and a place that gives it strategic depth vis-a-vis -vis Israel, its enemy, and which allows it to also support a militia group in Lebanon called Hezbollah that is committed to uh, fighting Israel. It allows them to, for example, uh, you know, transport weapons and money to Hezbollah through Syria. Russia 
has a legacy of working with the Syrian regime, particularly under the Soviet Union. Russia has naval bases and air bases in Syria. It has some commercial ties, but more importantly, it views Syria and particularly the Syrian regime as a reflection of its world dominance. And it's one of the few countries that, that allows it to have access to the Mediterranean and to showcase the world that it's still a relevant power mm-hmm. and one that can stand against U.S. hegemony and the West by maintaining. Mm-hmm. Because it looks at the, at the Bosnian War, at, at Kosovo, at what happened to Libya, where its former allies were deposed, right. in part because of Western intervention. Right. So it looks at Syria as a last, basically, pawn? place. And pawn. Uh, to maintain its access to the region, but also to be seen as an equal power with the United States. Now, I don't want to jump ahead here, but since you bring up Russia, Mm. I mean, we also look to Russia to help us sort of solve this problem, right? Or no? Or no, no, like what's the what's no Russia is a belligerent in the conflict. They are an active contributor in the regime's attempt to squash the pro-democracy movement. And in annihilating any opposition areas that refuse to surrender and come back under regime control. Mm. Everybody is hearing right now about Ghouta. Yeah, Ghouta. The, the Ghouta suburb the of Damascus. It's part of Damascus. It's a part of Damascus. Damascus being the, the capital. Correct. So it's as if I'm talking about Washington, D.C., and Capitol Hill is getting bombed by the Russians. Wow. Okay, so we, so it's not Capitol Hill. Washington, D.C. is getting bombed. Right. Same thing with Damascus and with Ghouta. So this neighborhood of Ghouta or, or a conglomerate of neighborhoods is getting bombed by the Russians who are doing their best with Iran's help, with Hezbollah's help, to ensure that the regime regains those territories at all cost, any cost. And so, yes, we've engaged them diplomatically because they have leverage over the regime and they are supporting it militarily. But I've always said and I'll always continue to say their ambitions are to uh, defeat the opposition, allow Assad to stay, and maybe consider some kind of peripheral reforms down the line. But they must be seen as having emerged from the Syrian conflict as victorious particularly vis-a-vis the United States. So let's talk about the opposition for a second, because I I want people to sort of understand that terrain. So the opposition are groups of people in Syria who want freedoms. They want to be able, I'm assuming, to live their life and have access to the things we have here in America. Like you can get an education, you can roam about the planet for, you know, and not fear for your safety and, and have a decent mm. job and have a voice and have freedom of religion and all, all of those things. So can you just sort of, who are the major opposition groups yeah. and are they part of the good guys or the bad guys? So just sort of, you know, yeah. <laughs> in the best way possible, outline sort of, okay. you know, the major opposition groups in Syria. All right. And what they want. Just very quickly regarding the previous topic, yeah. the other main countries in the conflict yes. now are clearly Turkey. Yes, who They're, who was supposed to be like helping us out, but they were they were working with us. But really, their goal was they had two dual they had dual goals. One, they came to the conclusion Assad has to go because of the atrocities he has committed. But their real reason, they've always been afraid that through that chaos, the Kurds in northern Syria would unite with the Kurds in southern Turkey and try to go for more autonomy. That would lead to some kind of loss of territory in Turkey. Oh. So that is why now you see them intervening because they've been seeing what's going on and they have moved into northern Syria to combat a group they consider as a terrorist organization, the YPG, the People's Workers Party, and their armed affiliates who have, because of the chaos in Syria, in part with our support, 
have carved out a semi-autonomous region in, 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 in Syria on the border with Turkey. Mm-hmm. And that freaks Turkey out. You cannot go to Turkey and say, can you please find a way to live with this reality? I think it's a, it's a pragmatic thing for them to do, but they viscerally, I have not seen them being able to, to you know, contemplate such a thought. And we've worked with the YPG or these Kurdish militia to combat the Islamic State in Syria. And they so have been, ISIL. Correct. ISIS. So on some level, the Saudis are also very interested in Syria because they are afraid of growing Iranians and Hezbollah presence in Syria. Well, I don't know if it's obvious to people, but Saudi Arabia and Iran have been basically adversaries in the region as well because of their competing visions not just of what kind of Islam the region should have, but who should be in control mm. of the Arab world and of and and kind of politically be seen as the leader of the region. Right. So th- that, those that's a really important so, dynamic for people to understand. So there's a lot of hands. So because you have all these hands. Yeah. What started as a an indigenous pro democracy peaceful movement descended very quickly into a proxy war because mm. every every one of those countries, the United States included, and Russia. They had their own motivations, right? I just said Russia wants to support Assad and maintain its prestige. We really, and I can say this because I was at the State Department at the time, wanted to support the pro-democracy movement. But if it was able to work out a deal with Assad where they jointly form a new government, we were fine with it. Under democratic principles. We were fine with it. I mean, I want to be very clear about this. And, you know, when the killing started to add up, it was just not tenable. You can't be like, oh, this dictator killed 100,000 people. And we can see a way for him to stay in power. Right. You just can't. And this this goes back to the moment uh, with the chemical weapons used. Yeah. And the regime has used chemical weapons. Right. It's still using it today. I have been deeply involved in the chemical weapons issue on Syria. So through this, these di- because of these dynamics, each group began to support its favorite opposition group. And what's emerged is the opposition today includes some of those you know true Democrats. But those with the guns are not really the same opposition that began this this movement. Right. They're hardened. They're bitter. Uh, they're radicalized. It's only normal. Seven years of constant bombardment and unchecked brutality by the regime right. has now given us some pretty extreme opposition group. And also, beyond those who may have been radicalized, you have terrorist organizations that have seen an opportunity in Syria, right. saw the drawing on, on the wall, an and went in there. Yeah. So Al-Qaeda went in there, and then they had affiliates and the Islamic State was born mainly because of the chaos in Syria. What you had, the Islamic State is really former al-Qaeda fighters who were in Iraq who fought against us and the new Iraqi government because they viewed it as an illegitimate occupation, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. plus Syrians and foreign fighters who came into Syria to wage jihad, mm. and they formed ISIS. So you have ISIS or ISIL, the Islamic State. You have al-Qaeda. You have legitimate opposition fighters. Who it's, you know, Who've been in it for a long time. A long time. <laughs> and they range in stripes from those who are just nationalists, maybe former army defectors. They care about their country. Mm. They don't want like an Islamic state style governance. All the way to like the civil, you know, uh, civil rights advocates with no guns and just, you know, a Twitter handle. So it spans the gamut really now. And which adds to the complexity of figuring out who who should be supported and why and how. And so um, the things that we hear about here in the United States is so, for example, according to Amnesty International, more than four hundred thousand Syrians have been killed. It's over six hundred. Yeah, over six hundred. It's wow. really it's well, and it's, who, nobody really quite knows. Nobody, at this point. you know, no. I've seen different numbers across across different. It's a very large number now. 
Um, over a million have been injured and over 12 million, um, half the population has been, are, displaced. has been displaced from their homes. And March 15th, which is just marks the eighth year uh, anniversary of the sort of start of the Civil War, seventh year anniversary, seventh year anniversary. of the Civil War. And so I, I understand of the this, Syrian revolution of the Syrian revolution. <laughs> I mean, there's so much yeah. that, again, comes up out of this. So. Let's go back to like Assad for a mm. second. Why is he using chemical weapons against his own people? Like, I, I mean, I get the opposite, the idea of mm. there are a group mm. of people who don't want you in power. Yeah. But just in terms of like humanity, I would think that as a leader, you'd want to figure it out. Right. Yeah. By any means. All the, these are all your countrymen and women. See, it begins with that. It's no. Okay. He, 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 well, first of all, I'll never claim to understand the psychology of mass murder. <laughs> okay. Okay, you know, fair. Why did That's Hitler fair. do what he did? That's fair. At That's the end fair. of the day. But it must include an element of dehumanizing your opponent. You know, he has convinced himself and his supporters that what he is facing is an American, mm. Zionist, Wahhabi conspiracy theory. Now, fortunately, many people on the left have bought into that, by the way, which is crazy. The left here in the United yes. States. Yes. Mm. International leftists, in yeah. fact. The progressives. They, they've been susceptible to some of these arguments because they're anti-imperialists as well. Mm -hmm. And so you come to them and say, see, here's the United States. They're coming at it again after Iraq. No, this is a completely different beast. So he has convinced himself of this conspiracy and that those who are opposing him are basically extremists in disguise, mm -hmm. that they are less than human, that these people deserve to be eliminated in order for him to maintain control of the country because him and his family are the only ones who can rule it properly. Right. But another element is now, given the history, I mean, they know that they've been ruling this country with an iron fist. And any dictator will tell you probably that you can't ease your way out of a situation like that where you've been ruling a country so brutally. When things start to unravel, they unravel very quickly, and you can end up being dragged out of your presidential palace and hung like Mussolini. Or right, whatever. right. So to them, it's a zero-sum game. Either I leave this country or I die fighting. And as we're seeing, his decision is to do whatever mean you know whatever he needs to stay, hold on to power, including by using chemical weapons. And so speaking of the chemical weapons, Obama mm. received a lot of flack yeah. for not using military intervention. Yeah back when Assad used his chemical weapons. And uh, some say it was a win because then he, you know, said, oh, yeah, here's all of my stockpile mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Of, of chemical yeah. weapons. Yeah. And we were like, some people were like, yeah, that's great. See, he wouldn't have done that before. And then others were like, wait a minute, Obama, you had this quote unquote red line. Yeah. So you were in the administration. Yeah. And so tell us what that red line was about. Basically, we had communicated to the Syrian regime we meaning the Obama the administration. States, mm -hmm. We did, uh, because we knew they had a notorious chemical weapons program. Syria is one of the few countries in the country that has a very active chemical weapons and biological weapons program. Because you understand, again, where they are located and as a dictatorship and technically still at war with Israel, they view it as a poor man's answer to chemical, to nuclear weapons. So, uh, But knowing that they had that capacity. I've never heard that. I've but there is. I mean, to them, that's where it is. It's, it's the you know, poor. I'm laughing because it's so ridiculous, not laughing because it's funny. It's like. Well, it's the evil poor man's, you know, yeah. weapon basically yeah. of choice. <laughs> um, okay. But knowing that they had that capacity and hearing rumors that they were planning or may have used it a little bit, we signaled to them through their allies that that's something they cannot do. And when we started hearing reports that, you know, you have to understand there's no free media access, 
you know, it's not like we have our embassy there anymore. We had shut it down. Right. So the reporting is very difficult. So our sources were the opposition saying, hey, the regime is trying to use chemical weapons. Of course, we don't have scientists on the ground to figure out whether that's true or not. And so we messaged them, you cannot do that. And then eventually the president made that statement that that is a red line. Because beyond just Syria, there are international norms that almost every country in the world has come to agreement to beginning since World War I when chemical weapons were first used. That's an international norm that needs to be upheld. Otherwise, I mean, in my opinion, some of what the Russians are doing in terms of assassinating their political right. opponents using these kind of materials, I really think they've been emboldened by the lack of enforcement in places like Syria. Mm. So when the regime violated it, and the way they violated it was first starting small, testing it out in some battle spaces, and then they went big, uh, I believe in 2013, dropping or launching sarin gas, which is a nerve agent, that killed about 1,400 civilians in Gulta, the same place the same we're place talking we about today. About, yeah. They've been trying to flesh out the opposition and their families and any civilian from that region since that time. So Gulta is, uh, it sounds like it's a stronghold it's for a stronghold the opposition. It's a stronghold of the opposition, basically in the heart of Damascus. Mm. So when they did it, we basically were put in a position where we had to enforce what we had just said, which is if you do A, we'll do B. As the president later you know, told, uh, I believe, The Atlantic in his you know, famous uh, interview with Mr. Goldberg, the president was never sold on the idea that the United States can fix something like the Syrian conflict. Now, I don't disagree with that position. Where I do disagree is that the United States, as really uh, a superpower, and the inheritor of the post-World War II international system that we've all benefited from in mm -hmm. one degree or another has an obligation to do something when it says it's going to do and to enforce and protect these international norms with allies. And when we don't, you have a breakdown of the international system. You have a breakdown of norms, and you have people, whether it is, and, and dictators really, whether it's Putin, Assad, even you know the North Koreans, and then would-be demagogues in Eastern Europe that are emerging right now. Right. Some would say in our own politics here, <laughs> emboldened. Right. Emboldened. To, to do whatever they want to do. To do whatever they want. So, so the With break, no accountability So or this goes beyond Syria. Right. And what we're seeing right now, in my opinion, has been partially created because of our inability to deter this mass, you know, mass-scale genocide and, and, and ethnic cleansing really that's now taking place. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, to put a stop to these atrocities or at, li at least be seen as legitimately trying to mm -hmm. and of allowing now, you know, these human rights abusers to create havoc in other parts of the world now on the political level. I mean, I see to me the killing of civilians in Ghouta, of displacing people to go into Europe in mass right. uh, is an intentional strategic attack against Europe and the United States. Not because of these refugees are actually going to do anything, but it is the fear that it creates right. among people who may never meet these refugees. Right. But Mr. Putin is sitting in Moscow being very happy about the destabilizing effect. The chaos. And the chaos and how he, we have seen now Europeans and Americans willingly con contemplating winding back their own refugee refugees, immigration but program. also their own internal uh, commitments to democracy and, and upholding certain principles. They're doing it. The Russians don't have to do this for us. We're willingly doing it. And we're seeing that fear being manipulated here right. to convince people that also we should be afraid adopting more draconian policies. And and so 
you know, well, and, and sort of related to your point about disagreeing, well, what do you think about what President Trump did last year um, with dropping? Which one? There was so many things with it. <laughs> well, last, last spring he yeah. dropped, you know, the bombs in, in Syria. Yeah. And there was, yeah. you know, all of this havoc. It was like, I think it like happened overnight and yeah. people woke up on Twitter and it was yeah. like, we... Are we going to start a war with Syria? Yeah, yeah. So do you, is that the type of response you were looking for from um, this, from, I, I mean. Not, on not, the surface, yes, actually. Okay. But where President Obama was methodical and maybe too judicious in his thinking about issues, which I admire, uh, but in the Syria, case of the Syrian case, maybe he didn't act enough. There's no clear strategy from Trump or, or, mm. or the White House. So it was more of a, a typical Trumpian response to something he didn't like. He saw images of dying children in Syria because of yet another chemical attack. So there was a probably a legitimate emotional, you know, response. response. And then he told the Pentagon, whack the guy as a punishment. And they whacked him. And I was very happy that they did. But that was not, and I knew that's not tied to an actual strategy. Like, it's how do you whack him? And then you <laughs> go back and say, hey, if you do it again, I'm going to whack you again. Right. And hey, Russia, make sure he doesn't do that. And right. by the way... Maybe we should sit down and figure a better way to do this. Right. You know, is it is it tied to a diplomatic strategy? Is Correct. it tied to a coercive right. diplomas, diplomatic? Are you bringing tra- in other allies who might Correct. be able to sit down so, with Assad? Yeah. I don't, you know, it doesn't seem that it was, which is unfortunate because in a way it discredits the very need, it discredits the legitimate need to establish deterrence, deterrence in Syria. I was one of the advocates of the State Department for coercive diplomacy. Where? What is that? You... The way it works is this. You go to the adversary and say, we really want a peaceful solution. But if you don't and you continue violating human rights or killing your own people, we're probably going to try to punish you in this way. You communicate it straight up. Be a sanctions so or Sanctions whatever. or you say, you know what, Mr. Assad, next time you drop a few bombs on, on, on your own people, we're going to take out some of those planes. We're going to take them out with cruise missiles from, from our ships in the Mediterranean. So we don't even have to fly over your airspace and risk our airmen or airwomen being shot down. Oh, and by the way, Russia, Iran, if you have personnel near these planes, you should get the hell out because we're not interested in starting right. a fight with you. Right. So, and if he, does, if, he, if he ignores that, you take them out. And then you go back and say, listen, we don't want to keep doing this. Would you like to sit down with the opposition and find a better way forward? Basically, this is what we did in Kosovo, by the way. We used our military power in pursuit of a diplomatic solution. And it worked. Now, I'm not going to say it will always work, but it's definitely something that was never tried in Syria in a strategic fashion. And I have long been advocating, along with plenty of other diplomats, about 50 of us, in fact, mm-hmm. uh, engage a Secretary of State formally at the State Department, advocating for the need to uh, establish deterrence in Syria by convincing the regime that there will be a military response uh, to its mass violations of the rights of its people. Right. And and you know, unfortunately that advice was never never really implemented by the administration. I think it was a mistake. And so why should anybody care? Yeah. Why should anybody if you're in well, Southeast, if you're in Dearborn, Michigan, if yeah. you're in you know We have a lot of problems here, don't we? We have a whole a lot, lot of problems. problems. Lot and you you touched on some of the pieces around refugees and immigration, um, you know, that that hit close to home. But but why you know, you're here in America, we're here. Why why should anybody actually care? Why is this relevant? Well, you know, I'm never gonna use the term should. We all have our daily struggles and our concerns and our families and and every day it seems like there's something bad happening to us here, unfortunately, from this government. 
but we do live in an interconnected world. We can ignore it, but that's the planet we're on. An action somewhere can have a consequence somewhere else. It may not be immediate. It could be long-term. But actually, because of the effect of technology, those consequences have been sped up. It seems the mental and the physical distance between people has shrunk. Mm. So when you have a dictator dropping bombs on his people, eventually that instability it creates has affected the neighboring countries right? and has had a cascading effect, has affected other countries. So refugees, they have been forced to leave Syria, and many of them have tried to go to Europe. The fear of refugees has empowered populists who are saying, oh, my God, the Muslim herds are coming right. to take over We don't want these us. terrorists in, these, it in our country. It has put them in power. Right. Well, those populists now are coming under the influence of Russia. All of a sudden, the United States is losing allies in Europe. And that in itself gives us less influence in the world. But more importantly, it's now those po- that, that fear of the other has infected our own domestic politics. As we saw in Idaho. As we've seen in Idaho, we've seen in Charlottesville, as we've seen right. in, in Charleston. In the, in the almost 100% increase in hate crimes against Muslim Americans since 2014, and in the rapid increase, an unexpected, I would say, increase of hate crimes and attacks against uh, American Jews, and of all of that kind of being coming together in this, you know, mucky, yucky, toxic soup of hatred of immigrants, of Latinos, of transgender people. And I have never seen a moment since the civil rights, you know, struggle where Americans were Americans, not their politicians, were so, you know, divided and fearful of each other. This has affected us now. Right. Today, here. Yeah. I know it's very uplifting. <laughs> it's extremely uplifting. I know. I know. This, this you know... It, People want to just hide away from the stuff, and I get it. Look, it's not it's not all horrible. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing had uh, this administration not you know been elected. It was a final straw for me. I'm a foreign policy guy. I love the world. I love to travel, represent us abroad. That's what makes me excited. But I just could not function and really go work on Syria while my own house was burning here. Mm-hmm. And so what, what I'm saying is I, a lot of people I know whether in working for civic engagement organizations, starting their own, you know, podcast, podcast <laughs> or running for office, right. as we all know, right. particularly minorities and women, they're getting engaged. So in a way, I think we're witnessing also rebirth of American civic engagement and redefining it, both the way it looks and its platform. Yeah. You know, when you get involved, the things you're going to bring to the table are different than your old school, you know. Foreign policy, think for, tank wonk. Yeah. Um, from wherever, when, yeah. when, when some of my friends were running for office, you know, whether they're first or second generation immigrants, they're going to represent certain values that are really important. When you have people who were not, you know, handed a silver spoon when they're growing up and now they're getting involved because they're unhappy with what's happening, maybe they will one day help us have better tax reform, right. better health care policies because they've lived it and now they are on the other side. Right. So I'm actually hopeful. Uh, I'm excited. It's a challenge. It's heartbreaking, particularly when we talk about something like Syria. But uh, my message is this is the time to, to get involved and, quite frankly, to experiment. I mean, clearly, Mr. Trump has experimented, and he found out he could be president. Right. So we probably can also afford to experiment in some things to see how we can play a role. Yeah, and be maybe a little bit more vulnerable 
with our experimentation. I think we, it's easy just to sit back and watch what's happening. If we can sort of lean in a little bit and expose ourselves to things and different ideas and perspectives, I think it'll help us call into question a lot what's going on and maybe a lot of what we believe. Um, I think you've nicely helped us land this plane <laughs> of Syria. There's so much more that we can talk about and um, that we could go into on a deeper level. Uh, but this is the beginning of a conversation. So if someone wants to sort of learn more mm. about Engage, about Syria, how can they find more information? Well, you know, Engage is focused mainly on our domestic political scene mm-hmm. with some foreign policy issues. But we are at EngageUSA.org. Uh, we also have Engage Action, which is our issue advocacy arm. So depending on what their interests uh, are, EngageAction.org is a great resource on policy positions, on how to engage Congress, any elected officials. Beyond that, you know, it, it's it's really important for people to get a diverse sources of, of, of their media. You know, there, there's a wealth of information here in D.C., but beyond you know, the Beltway, uh, just to make sure that they are, even if they're always watching, you know, listening to Fox News, you know, Pick check out what the other side is BBC saying. BBC or doing. something, yeah. You know, yeah. You know, what's funny. CNN International is a whole lot better than CNN. Domestic. <laughs> Seriously, it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, if you want really, look, or better international news, check out the international version right. of their media. You can follow me on Twitter. Yes. Uh, and then double check what I'm saying because, hey, <laughs> I have my biases. We all do. We all do. We you know, all we do. all do. But we acknowledge them. And we acknowledge the fact that there are other perspectives, which Absolutely. is like the start of any sort of critical change. Absolutely. And and reach out to us if you want to learn more about uh, civic engagement, yep. about advocating for better policies. If we can be of any value or help to any community out there, really, or me personally, I'll be more than happy to to have an offline conversation. And I'm going to make sure we share Engage's uh, social media so that you guys can find them easily online and and keep up with all the great work. So um, thank you so much, Wael. This has been an amazing conversation. And remember, you all can listen to this show uh, by going to our website, whatintheworldpodcast.com. And we're on SoundCloud at What, what in the World Podcast. And uh, this is heavy stuff. So Wael... Uh, it's tradition here on this show that we ask each one of our guests to end us on a happy note mm. uh, with a song or a group that keeps them in a good mood when, you know, the world seems like it's a, a mess, a hot, yeah. a hot flaming mess. So so tell us your your artist and your song that keeps it keeps you in a good mood and why. Well, well, I'm not sure if this the message in this song. I'm not sure if if will give you a good mood, but the <laughs> definitely the soundtrack puts me in a good mood. Creedence Clearwater Revival, Fortunate Son, really anything they've ever played. Uh, the lead singer is from Berkeley, and I went to Berkeley. Okay. And you know, the, their music came came about during the Vietnam War, and they're an awesome rock and roll band. And you know, I probably have been caught speeding listening to them. <laughs> So I need you to stop speeding. We need you out here in the <laughs> world and not arrested somewhere for a speeding ticket. I'm biking more now, so okay. safer for everyone. Awesome. Well, thank you all again for listening. Well, thank you for spending your time with us and breaking this down. And um, it doesn't end here. The conversation will continue. Thanks so much. See you